So I have a fact for you. Uh huh. That I wrote down to tell you. <laughs> really? OJ Simpson loves musicals. Fuck off. So I was listening to an episode of a podcast and they were talking about how on one of his first dates with Paula Barbieri, which is the woman that he was with when he murdered his wife. Did they see Oklahoma or something or watch My, My Fair, Fair Lady. Lady? They watch My Fair Lady and he knows all the words to it. I was listening to this the other day when I was painting my house, this exact episode were of the you? podcast. Yeah. And it made me so sad. It made me think, well, maybe we have to stop loving musicals. Because OJ Simpson loves musicals. Yeah, I don't want to I don't want to have anything in common with that dude. Anyway, that's everyone's fact for the week. I was a bit um taken Are you distressed? Aback. Yeah. Also interesting that my fair lady was the one that he showed. <laughs> right? Don't you think? Bit subservient. Uh, a bit. <laughs> Fetch me my slippers. Hi, Ruth. Hi, Josephine. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? Very well, thank you. It feels like it's been so long. It has been so long. That's true. Cool. Hello, everyone. Welcome to My Favourite Musical, the podcast. It's a podcast. That, that's what I said. It's about musicals. That's also what I said. She's angry at me today. Uh, that's Ruth. That's Josephine. Yeah, we're your hosts. This is the podcast where we tell you about our favourite musicals. This is episode 39, so we're scraping the bottom of the barrel. I'm not. So I was considering asking if we could just call it, like, musicals I know. Because <laughs> now it's getting to the stage of... How about do, Ruth's favourite musicals? It, it's still Ruth's favourite musicals. It... It ceased being my favourite musicals a I can long go time. on. I can <laughs> okay. go on for years. <laughs> Look, I'm still going to tell you about musicals, but do I, do I love them? Are they my favourite? I don't even know. Oh. I love today's one, actually. Okay. Yeah. Well, then see. Yeah, it's true. I'm a fraud. You are. I'm just anticipating A lovable something. fraud. Thank you. Ruth, have you got any apologies for us today? I don't think so. No, nor do I. Yeah. Yeah, good. What about your spotlight? Okay. Today... <laughs> Yes. I'm talking to you about a man called Jeremy O'Harris. Do you know him? I don't. Okay. So I've actually wanted to talk about him for a long time. You've got a weird look is, on your face. What's happening? What have I got? You've got like a weird oh, look. Oh, I just love him. Yeah, I can tell. Um, I want to talk about him for a long time, but the thing is he's not that directly related to musical theatre. Oh, uh, who cares? And, but I, I have a, a link, oh so God. it's fine. I can All do right. it. Um, so he's a 31-year-old African-American actor and playwright. And there's your link. Yeah. He's had a show on Broadway. Oh, wow. It just, it was a play. Yeah. Um, so that the, the link is that he was one of the producers of the Ratatouille, the TikTok musical uh-huh. concert. In fact, he was one of the executive producers. So yeah, I never really had an excuse to cover him before, but now I do. Yeah. Right? Nice. Um, so he's most known for his play Slave Play, uh, which had a Broadway run in 2019 and is nominated for 12 Tony Awards oh. at the... Tony Awards for whenever they end up happening, which is still not clear. That's amazing. So that's also a record for the most ever nominations for a play. Yeah. Uh, If it wins Best Play, it'll be the first time a black playwright has won since August Wilson won for Fences, which was before Jeremy O'Harris was born. Mm. Right? Mm. Insane. Um, So the slave play follows three interracial couples undergoing antebellum sexual performance therapy, which is a condition that he sort of has made up because the black partners no longer feel sexual attraction to their white partners. Oh. Yeah. 
Um, and so, yeah, it's a whole, it's a real like, uh, like intense wow. exploration of like interracial couples and yeah, wow. racism and that sort of thing. And like slave play refers to like the sexual role play. Yes. So yeah, full on. It wow. sounds amazing. I wish I could have seen it. Yeah. Jeez. Um, What's interesting particularly about him is that like during COVID, he's kind of become a bit of a voice of the Broadway community Yeah, in a way that um, Broadway, American theatre hasn't really had otherwise. So like in the UK, for example, like Andrew Lloyd Webber really kind of became the face of theatre and talking for the West End and things like that. And there was no one really doing it on Broadway and he just really kind of stood up and took that on, you know? Yeah. Um, and the other amazing thing that he's done is he's really turned to philanthropy uh, with his sort of success, particularly since COVID. So yeah. he went from making around $22,000 in commissions over the course of four years, right, pre-2019, pre his show enough. going to Broadway, to over a million dollars in a year oh, wow. because he signed a deal with HBO and he also had some, like, fashion um, contracts and things like that. That's fantastic. So with that sort of newfound wealth, he's done the following. He has funded, with New York Theatre Workshop, two $50,000 commissions for new work by black women playwrights. The idea being that that would be enough for say those women, it's like the idea of it being a livable wage in New York city. So for a year, they don't have to worry, right? They can just work on their art and not worry about like making ends meet. Mm. Um, He's helped produce streamed versions of the plays Heroes of the Fourth Turning and Circle Jerk using a portion of the $250,000 annual theatre production fund HBO gave him when he signed a development deal. Oh, wow. He's donated a collection of plays by black writers to one library in each of the 50 states plus Washington, D.C., Puerto Rico and Guam and pledged fees and royalties from Slave Play to fund $500 micro-grants administered by the Bushwick Star Theatre to 152 US-based playwrights and gave proceeds from the Heroes production to a Playwrights Horizons Relief Fund for theatre artists. What an incredible guy. Yeah, he's he's so awesome. Holy shit. He's so awesome. And even I remember him going on – uh, Seth, um, the, you know, the late night with yeah. Seth Meyers, that's Seth it. Seth Meyers, yes. Um, when Slave Play was on and just basically saying like, hey, Seth, will you pay for but th- this whole audience to go and see Slave Play and like putting him on the spot and, and he did it. Wow. Yeah, yeah, and stuff like that. And, yeah, he's just awesome. What a legend. He's such a legend. I'm yeah. going to follow him now. Like. You really should. Follow him on t- Twitter and, like, yeah, Instagram okay. and stuff like that. Yeah. Awesome. He's so awesome. Anyway. Oh, that was good. That's Thank Jeremy you. Harris. Everyone Jeremy should follow O'Harris. him. He's amazing. Nice. Yeah. Um, my spotlight is very tenuously linked to musical theatre. Okay. But I promised I would explain what a just transition is. Oh, that's not tenuous. Well, no. No. But, like, yeah. So last week on our last episode, I talked about the environmental impact of streaming and using technology and how the theatrical community must account for their environmental impact. Um, I mentioned the Just Transition Framework, so I wanted to tell you a bit more about it. Okay, so the Just Transition Framework is defined by the Climate Justice Alliance as a vision-led, unifying and place-based set of principles, processes and practices that build economic and political power to shift from an extractive economy to a regenerative economy. Mm. Yeah, it seeks to dismantle intersecting systems of oppression by providing alternative social and cultural paradigms and inclusive visions for thriving and well-being. So... 
I did quite a bit of research because it, there's a lot of there are a lot of words there. Yeah, it's basically this program that is like it's aiming to heal damage from capitalism, from colonialism, from racism and patriarchy. That uh, like all of the damage that those systems have inflicted on the biosphere, uh. and that also comes down to like workers' rights. So interestingly, it was a term coined by trade unions to protect workers who found themselves unemployed due to environmental protection policies. And oh, it's fascinating. Now, I know. It's like now, miners. Yeah. And, yeah. Now it's really about moving towards a more sustainable society and providing like capacity for the green economy in inverted commas to sustain decent jobs and livelihoods for everyone. Yeah. So it's like it's a much broader concept than theatre obviously but it's it's like a really cool framework for us to approach everything that we do. Yeah. Because really at the heart of it, like protecting our environment needs to be primary, mm. you know. So I found that really fascinating. Um, yeah, that's the Just Transitions framework. Awesome. Mm. What's our theatre explained We're for We're going to talk about the dance captain. Indeed. Do you want to tell us a bit about it? Yeah, so... Uh, my understanding of a dance captain is this, um, a member of the company of a show um, responsible for overseeing the artistic standard of the choreography and the musical staging. And so basically um, the dance captain works with the associate director mainly to preserve the vision of the creative team. They run rehearsals. They're in the show themselves. They're busy people. They usually like train up the swings or the understudies or any new cast who come in like that's my understanding of the Yeah, exactly. Captain. Like they're basically there to keep the choreography as the creators intended, yeah. right? Like yeah. it's get everyone in ship shape. Yeah. Yeah. And as you said, often responsible for like new members of the cast being ready and also if someone's out of the show due to illness or whatever, the dance mm. captain has to make sure that whoever the understudy or the swing is is ready to step in. Yes. You know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um the choreographer normally selects a dance captain, like in terms of how it would get hired. Yeah. Um, and sometimes there is more than one dance captain and yeah. also sometimes there is an assistant dance captain. Well, I suppose on the bigger, like fully Corey heavy shows, there yeah. have to be like, it'd be such a huge job. Yeah. And then to also be a performer in the show. Yeah. So as, as Josephine just said, the dance captain is always in the show. Sometimes they're a swing, but they are always a member of the cast. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. That's great. That's yeah, the dance that's captain. Dance captain. Uh, what's your recommendation this week? Okay. Um, I've just got a couple of little ones. Okay. Um, one is, and like we're a little way away from it now, but uh, when I first wrote this, we were fresh off um, Biden's inauguration, president, new president of hey. America, which is very exciting. And one of the things that happened was a performance at his inauguration concert, which they sort of streamed this time, uh, which was a bunch of Broadway stars, like yeah. so many Broadway stars. And they do seasons of love a sort of a medley of seasons of love and let the sunshine in, uh, let the sunshine in from hair. And yeah, it's just full of everyone you'll recognize. And, you know, we've all heard so those joyous. songs yeah. a million times before, but like, yeah, it's super joyous and it's just really fun seeing everyone so I've linking to that I like that and the second one is uh kind of in the spirit of a series that I linked a little while ago but the New York Times has been covering a few of these sort of famous that you know they did that series of shows that never came into Broadway remember oh, I linked yeah. to that a little while ago so kind of in that vein yeah they did this great article about um that's called a Frankenstein that never lived oh. and it's about this massive spectacle play um that opened the day that sorry that opened the closed the day after opening night 20 years ago this month oh wow on Broadway so it was like kind of a spectacle play before they existed yeah cool. and it was of Frankenstein and so yeah it was like this massive all this money was going into it and 
there's all these incredible, you know, technical things happening on stage, but it was just a bit, it got a, a terrible, like a famously terrible review oh, in the no. New York Times and everywhere. And then, yeah, they closed the day after opening. Shit. So anyway, it's a really, it's just sort of a, like a bit of an oral history almost of that. And yeah. so it's really interesting. Wow. So I'm looking to that as well. That's fascinating. Yeah. Nice. Um, my recommendation this week Um I actually, so I, look, I didn't know when I recommended watching Bridgerton on our last episode that it would turn into a musical so quickly, Uh, but here we are. So get yourselves to TikTok, which I have now finally downloaded because of this. Yeah. Um, so basically a whole bunch of TikToks um, people have created a Bridgerton musical, yeah. like much like the Ratatouille process. So we have follow the TikTok um, Bridgerton musical hashtag. It's it's really amazing. Yeah, I've seen both Natalie Weiss and Bonnie Milligan post videos of yes. it in the last couple of weeks. It's, yeah. um, it's awesome to see. So, yeah, it turns out my Bridgerton recommendation of many weeks ago was actually <laughs> fucking relevant. So, <laughs> so there you go. Uh, uh. I actually I saw an interview where Jonathan Bailey was like, Oh, I would totally be in that because he's of obviously course. a musical theater. He's like, yeah, no, let's let's do it. Yeah. So all the TikTok stars who are like fangirling over this show were yeah. just like beside themselves. I bet. <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. Imagine being in both. <laughs> Imagine. That's awesome. Yeah, so that's my recommendation. Awesome. Yeah. Shall are you I? first this week? I am first. Shall Tell I talk me about, to you about a musical. A little musical. It's a fun one this week. Oh, good, because last week was not, even though it was called Fun Home. It's true. It was not. It was... Uh, it's a, a full bummer. On show. Bummer yeah. home is what it should be called. Um, I'm talking to you about a little show called Something Rotten. Nice. Yeah. I nearly saw this on Broadway. Did you? Yeah. I wish I and had. And you picked Finding Neverland? Okay. Can I just say that my <laughs> husband picked Finding Neverland? <laughs> also, we had a third person with us who was not keen on like trying new okay. things. They wanted something they'd seen the film of. Exactly. Yeah. And that was Finding Neverland. That's true. Okay. Oh, that's – oh, but now I'm sad. Yeah, I know. I didn't realise you came close to seeing it. Yeah. Like that's that was my pick. Yeah. But anyway. Do you like the show, like having listened to it since? Oh, yeah. 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 It's – yeah. I just – I feel like even before I saw the show, I was sure to love it. Like I was it's, the same. Yeah. It's that sort of show. So although I don't like – audience participation or <laughs> panto style shows. I do love a show that is self-referential and yes. breaks the fourth wall specifically in that way. So hence, like I've previously covered both for Drowsy Chaperone and Title of Show. Yes. It kind of falls into that category for I me. Think same with Edwin Druid. Like it's in that yes. world. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And it's, uh, yeah, it just maybe not as it's a, I would say it's actually a bit more easily accessible than either drowsy or type, certainly more than title of show. Yes. Um, but yeah, it is in that vibe of show. I love that. So I saw it on Broadway in 2015. I actually ended up seeing it a second time during its run just cause I loved it so yeah. much. Um, and I also love that it is a completely original show and written by literal Broadway nobodies. Yeah. Like, had never done a Broadway show. I, I mean, love that. yes, I will get to them. They were famous in other ways, but yeah. they had never done a Broadway show before. I just, yeah, it's, I love a story like that. I love that sort of origin story. So anyway, so something rotten. Book by John O'Farrell and Kerry Kirkpatrick mm-hmm. and music and lyrics by Kerry and Wayne Kirkpatrick. Yeah. And it was the Broadway debut for all three of these men. Uh, right? Amazing. Yeah. 
So Wayne Kirkpatrick um, is a highly successful songwriter and musician. He mostly works in the country music scene and in particular with the band Little Big Town. Yeah. Uh, But he has written some songs for massive artists and his most famous song is probably Change the World that Eric Clapton performed. Yeah. A massive song. Huge. Huge, right? So that's one brother. His, bro- his younger brother is Kerry Kirkpatrick and he is a successful Hollywood screenwriter. Yeah. Having written the film adaptations of James and the Giant Peach, Over the Hedge and Chicken Run. Nice. Like big films, right? Then John O'Farrell, the book writer, is a British writer who had worked on Chicken Run with Kerry. That's how they met. And he had previously written for several satirical TV shows in the UK, including Have I Got News For You, which is a very popular show. Yeah. And he's also the writer of several books, both fiction and nonfiction, including The Man Who Forgot His Wife, which was a very famous. Yes. Yeah. So um, O'Farrell has sold over one million books in the UK alone. Like he's a very successful writer. That's awesome. So that same team have actually written the Mrs. Doubtfire musical, which had started previews three days before the COVID shutdown happened. So hopefully we'll reopen after COVID. But if you love something rotten, hopefully there is a new show coming from these guys, which is exciting. So the story. It is essentially a story of what it would have been like to be a contemporary of Shakespeare's. Uh, It is set in late 16th century England and we follow Nick and Nigel Bottom, who are playwriting brothers, and are currently writing Richard II when they find out that Shakespeare is also writing Richard II. (laughs) They're angry as he's already written Richard III and that would be going backwards. Right? So it's so cute. Yeah, it's it's so it's much so, of this, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. So Shakespeare in this version is essentially like a cocky rock star who everyone is obsessed with, right? Um, Nick Bottom goes to see a soothsayer whose name is Thomas Nostradamus, the nephew of the famous Nostradamus, oh my God. and who predicts that the next big thing in theatre will be something called a musical, right? <laughs> so Nick, Nick asks Nostradamus to foresee what Shakespeare's next big hit will be, like ostensibly so he can steal the idea. Yeah. And Nostradamus sees Hamlet but incorrectly identifies it as Omelette. Oh, my right? God. So they end up producing Omelette the musical. <laughs> Shakespeare accuses them of stealing ideas and Nick goes on trial and is sentenced to beheading. Instead, they make a deal with the judge to be exiled to America and start a new life there instead. Love it. And that's literally the whole story. Yeah. Uh, yeah it's very silly, but like. Great. Great. Yeah. So the brothers had had the idea since the 1990s and in 2011 finally got together with John O'Farrell to write a treatment, which they presented to producer Kevin McCullum, who we've talked about many times on the show, um, and the Kirkpatricks had previously known him. Like I read an interview where they were talking about being at like the final dress rehearsal of the Broadway production of Rent. Like they've known him for a long time kind of thing. And and even talking about it then, like they've they've had the idea forever. Jeez. Yeah. So they then joined with director, choreographer Casey Nicolor, um, who we've also talked about many mm. times, Aladdin and many other shows, Book of Mormon, and he, they, with him, put together a workshop in 2014. Nice. Things then move very quickly. So they were due to have a pre-Broadway engagement in April 2015 at the Fifth Avenue Theatre in Seattle, but they basically decided to skip this and go straight to Broadway because the theatre became available. Shit. They felt the show was ready. And if that meant that they could lock in the cast that they'd just had, Mm. um, like lined up for that pre-Broadway engagement, 
and because some of whom almost certainly would not have been available if they'd have waited. Yeah. So they were just like, let's do it. Wow. So Something Rotten opened on Broadway at the St. James um, Theatre uh, on March 23rd, 2015. It ran until January 1st, 2017 mm. and closed after 742 performances. It appeared to get close to recouping on Broadway, um, like – I think they were very close and the national tour may have sort of completed that, but there's yeah. no like actual publicity about it. Yeah. Okay. Um, but it would have gotten very close. Yeah. Wow. Uh, it was nominated for 10 Tony awards at the 2015 Tonys, but won only one uh, best featured actor for Christian ball as William Shakespeare. Mm. I actually didn't realize that this and fun home were in the same season when I picked this. Uh, but yes, that is what beat it to best musical and took home most of the awards that year. Yeah, I nice. do this a lot. Don't I? Like I pick things from seasons like you do in a row. Yeah. And I don't like, know why. It's like you remember it subconsciously. Yes. And you're like, Oh yes. It's, it's very strange to me. Because well, it was weird that it. I did Honeymoon in Vegas when you did Fun Home yeah. and they were from the same season. Uh, yeah, I don't understand Crazy. It. Don't worry, mine is not from this season. Um, I have told this story before, but uh, Nick Bottom is played by Brian Darcy James. Yes, who we love. Brian Darcy James, who I have met. Yes. And I'm going to tell that story again. Okay. So it's a I, nice story. I saw him in concert at 54 Below, uh, the amazing Broadway supper club, uh, a few years ago when I was there. And the way that 54 Below is you're often seated with strangers. Yeah. And so we got talking to the people that we were sitting with and the woman was the wife of the music of Brian Darcy James's musical director who was playing piano on stage. And so we got chatting to her. We talked to her most of the night and at the end, you know, her her husband had come over. We we were talking to him for a while. And then Brian Darcy James sort of came over to say hello to her and thinking that we were friends of theirs, just introduced himself to us. was like, Oh, hi, I'm Brian. It's like, Yes, yeah. we know. We we'll just see your show. We've booked tickets. <laughs> We're from Australia. <laughs> like, so that was amazing. He literally introduced himself to us oh. and it was everything. I imagine he's just the nicest guy ever too. The, literally the nicest. I can so see that. Yeah. Like. Oh. He just, yeah. And just so talented. I will say once again that his performance in Spotlight is just so good. And amongst like such Broadway heavyweights as well. Broadway Hollywood heavyweights. Hollywood heavyweights, yeah. yeah. But uh, he himself being a heavyweight yeah. on Broadway. But, yeah. Oh, my God. I know, he's so good. So good. Um, and then Nigel Bottom, the brother, is played by John Cariani, and he has been in a number of Broadway shows, including we discussed the band's visit not that long ago. Yeah. Well, so he wrote a play called Almost Maine, right? And it had a run of only one month off Broadway, but like in 2017 to 2018, it was the most produced play in North American high schools supplanting Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. What? Yeah, it's been, and it has been the most produced play in high schools for several years in America. What is this? Like, Apparently it is just the perfect play for schools to do. It's like a series of scenes uh, and it's, it's, so almost main is the idea is it's like not quite main. It's, yeah. it's like uh, this sort of we know every man means. town, like yes. our town style. Like, yeah. so yeah, it's that it's, and it's literally just this series of For scenes. For a second I thought you said almost mame. And so I thought this is like, just Maine. like off-brand mame. M-A-I-N-E, like the state. Yes. Yeah. It. So yeah, it, it's just. It was not very successful commercially, but it's just become well now it is, isn't it? A very common play, and yeah, and he continues to just be this Broadway actor wow. who has these. He'd be getting so much success. money from all this, yeah. Isn't it insane? I love it. That's I love a story good. like that. I love that, that story. Yeah. 
Um, I also just want to mention some of the other cast members because they're so awesome. So uh, Heidi Blickenstaff played B, Yay! Nick's wife. We discussed her in the title of show episode, yeah. obviously. She's Heidi in title of show. Uh, Brad Oscar as Nostradamus and Brooks Ashmanskis as Brother Jeremiah. Just Brooks. I love Brooks so Excellent. Much. Such talented people. And there were some, also some really great replacements in the cast as well. Rob McClure as Nick and Will, Will Chase and Adam Pascal both played Shakespeare nice. throughout the run. Yeah. Like amazing people. Amazing. 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 Uh, interestingly, they're not the only musical in the past few years to have Shakespeare as an actual character. Oh. The West End musical and Juliet, which opened in 2019, also features him. And in both, he's a dick, <laughs> which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's like. I love it, the interpretation that you can't be that talented without being a douche. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, also because, so particularly in Anne Juliet, it's like him and his wife. Like yeah. Anne Hathaway is like even a bigger character than him. Yeah. Um, that, that, by the way, if people don't know Anne Hathaway was the name of Shakespeare's, Shakespeare's wife, wife, it just happens that the actress Anne Hathaway also has the same name. Although apparently according to Anne Hathaway, the actress, we should be calling her Annie Hathaway. She hates the name Anne. Oh, okay. So not that I care what she hates. <laughs> Do you think her parents knew when they named her Anne? That, that it was Shakespeare's wife. wife's name? I don't Probably know how not. you couldn't. Like everyone knew that. Do- doesn't everyone know that? I thought that uh, was really common knowledge. She's American, isn't she? Yeah. Probably not then. <laughs> Your faith in the American educational system is, yeah. I think, well-founded. But, yeah, so, like, for example, you know, because he leaves, there's that whole thing where in Shakespeare's will he leaves his wife his second best bed. Yeah. You know, like he's clearly a fuckwit. Yeah. yeah. That's, a, that's a douchey thing yeah. to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, the song, a musical, which I will talk about, apparently got a standing ovation in the middle of act one every single night. Wow. And I can believe it. It, it, it actually also made me think of other numbers in other musicals like that. So friend like me in Aladdin is one yeah. where it you always just, gets like, it takes you away and you yeah. just like get worked up yeah. and yeah, yeah. And, um, also in the recent Jagged Little Pill, you ought to know has yeah. gotten a standing ovation pretty much every time. It's just like, it's a showstopper, yeah. right? Yeah. I, I love that. I love yeah. those stories. Um, so the music is filled with hundreds of excellent musical theater pastiche, um, and overt references. Mm. And in particular in the songs, a musical, which I mentioned and make an omelet, uh, just listen. You'll have an awesome time just finding all the different references. Like yeah. I could list them, but literally like every line is a different reference. There's too many. And then when you watch a clip of the musical, they're also doing them visually as well. Why don't you do, why don't we do a bonus episode where you just read out all the musical references? Yeah, just references all the musical references in, in a musical. Rotten. Yeah. It's, it's, in, it's, ve- and it's very well done. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Um, the title of the show, I want to talk about the title of the show because I think it is both incredibly clever and also probably works against itself. Mm. So it doesn't really tell you what the show is, no. which I think is a shame. But then the double meaning, so the line from Hamlet being something is rotten in the state of Denmark, yes. right, plus the references to Omelet the Musical, Eggs Going Rotten, like yes. all these double layers. Are... Once you know the show, it's very clever. Yes. But if you don't know it. That's right. Like if you just said, oh, something rotten, like it yeah. it doesn't really mean anything. And no. similarly, I think the Drowsy Chaperone suffers from the same thing. I agree. I think when we did Spelling Bee, it kind of suffers from the same thing as well. Yes. Like, yeah, it just it's an Although interesting. Although it is about a Spelling Bee. It is, but. I think that, yeah, it's hard because it's yes. like that name doesn't really mean anything to people. Also, I think Fun Home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. 
So the bottom line for me on this is that, yes, it is a super silly show in a lot of ways, but it also just has so much heart and love for theatre in it. And apparently the Kirkpatrick brothers are just massive musical theatre nerds. You'd and, have to be. And then John O'Farrell is a massive Shakespeare nerd. Yeah. So the whole thing is just packed with references and puns. Nice. I really think it's a great a show for amateur societies to do and I really do hope it gets done more and more in the years to come. Because, yeah, wouldn't that be good? Yeah, like it, it, it is just perfect for, for like community theatre. Yeah. I really think it is. Um, so I'm going to link to the original Broadway cast. That's the only thing available. And then some gateway songs. So I mentioned a musical. That is the one that is just literally jam-packed with musical references. You know, there's that bit where he's, where they talk about a thing in musicals where they sing the song on the same note all the oh, time yes. and then and they might go lower to show a different meaning and he goes, yes. that sounds miserable, and he goes, I believe it's pronounced miserable. Oh. It's so good. Yeah. Um, so I'm definitely number one, that's the one you have to listen to. I'm also going to link to Right Hand Man, which is um, B, is Heidi Blickenstaff's big song. I love it. Uh, which is a great just sort of sassy, good character number if you're looking for that. Uh, yeah, it's just like a great song on its yeah. own. And then I'm also going to link to Hard to be the Bard, which is Shakespeare's oh, yeah, kind one. of he comes out and, oh, it's his life so hard, you yeah. know, and that sort of thing. So that's yeah. a fun one too. So, yeah, that's something rotten. Oh, it is a fun show. It's really fun. I think I forget about it sometimes. Yeah. Well, I will say that um, similar to Drowsy, I actually think the music, in some ways the music in this is a little bit stronger than something yeah. like Drowsy. but. It it more of it the works better out. when you are watching the show yeah. than like just listening to the cast recording. Yes, some of it's good, but mostly I think the show works as a whole. Watching it, is there a pro shot anywhere? No, ah. guys, come I don't on. even think. Uh, well, there there would be there would there be something. there's so many bootlegs on YouTube now, isn't it insane? <clears throat> yeah, how like I do feel bad for copyright people who must just like you can't. I guess all of them are not working, right? Yes. Yeah. Like, it is yeah. insane. They're getting very brazen with the way, with the naming conventions. Mm-hmm. It's just like bootleg of a of a performance on Broadway of Hades Town. Yeah, illegally taken. I know. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, do you want to hear me talk about a musical? Yes, please. Today I'm going to talk to you about Assassins. Sometime. Sometime. Yes, it is time for more Sometime. We still have eight Sondheim shows left to cover. So for all of those people who thought. We had surely covered them all. Wrong. Are we going to? Do you think you'll do some just to do them? No. <laughs> I'm going to do so. forum at some stage. Yes. That I'll is probably, on my list. I'll probably do Pacific Overtures. Will you? I think so. Okay. But like not anyone like can whistle. Like I wouldn't whistle. do the frogs. Like No. Or like Roadshow. Poor anyone can whistle. Yeah. I do love that song. Yes, you do. <laughs> it's a beautiful song. It is a be- no, I'm not arguing. Do you like Assassins? Okay. The musical, not the... I think it's a better idea than the end result mm. actually, like, is. Yeah. I think that I particularly don't really like the ending of the show where they kind of try to tie it all together. Yes. Um. I have, have seen, you seen it. it. Yes, I saw it when the Hayes Theatre did it. Yeah, and it was a great production. Yeah, don't get me wrong; it's an amazing production. But it the was just like, and it's show. got some really good songs in it. Great, but songs. to me, I just like, why did they try and make them all meet? Yeah, you know. Yeah, it's funny because the things I love most about it are also the things that 
don't work. Yeah. That I also dislike the most about it. Yeah. Yeah, I feel it, so it, it's actually sort of hard because I feel like I personally like this show more than even some other sometimes I've already covered. Oh, interesting. Like, for example, I really love A Little Night Music, but I probably enjoy Assassins more. Yeah, right. But A Little Night Music is a better show. It's a mm. much better show. Like, it just is. Than like, this. structurally. Structurally, and, musically, yeah. like, the whole lot. It's just better. It makes more sense. I think I love – this is the other thing that I find hard. It's like Assassins, you know – Josephine and I are both massive true crime nerds, right? Yeah, so, the concept is so... so the, it, it appeals to me on yes. that level hugely. Yes. And I love the stories of yes. these real people. But for yeah. whatever reason, I just don't... I think it's like, yeah. Yeah. It doesn't quite work. It doesn't work. work. Yeah. Okay, let me tell you about it. Um, I, yeah, I do really like Assassins. I think it's once again a show that is so quintessentially Sondheim, but also like really unique and surprising, like yeah. unlike anything else he's done, magic. Um, it's a really difficult show with a difficult subject matter and like Ruth has said, I don't know if it's perfectly executed. Yeah. Like I just don't think they quite hit the mark yeah. there. Assassins is a book musical with music and lyrics by Stephen Joshua Sondheim <laughs> and book, book by John Wideman. It premiered off-Broadway in 1990. Yeah. Here's the plot. I've actually gone for the fully extended plot because I think it needs a proper explanation. Yeah. Okay. So the entire show uses what I think is an actually really great, clever framing device of this creepy, like all American carnival shooting game. So it's like side showy and they're in like this shooting, you know, like where you pick up the gun, you have to shoot like a target and you get a prize. Um, Time is really fluid in the show and each of the assassins interacts with each other throughout, even after we sort of find out that they've died and knowing that they lived like at vastly different times in history. So that already is slightly strange. At the beginning, our eight assassins gather around the game and the proprietor invites them to play the game, promising that their various problems will be solved by killing a president. Each assassin is given a gun um, with John Wilkes Booth. Um, he's introduced as like the pioneer of the assassins, um, exiting first to shoot Abraham Lincoln. The balladeer then enters, so he's a character like a narrator, um, and he's really the personification of the American dream. That's his like character. I don't know how you really know that. Mm. That's a bit abstract, but anyway. So he, the balladeer, enters to tell the story of John Wilkes Booth and we're transported back to 1865. So after, like, Booth shoots Lincoln and the cops come after him, Booth commits suicide, um, the assassins then gather in a bar where they're all, like, angry and disillusioned with their lives and we meet them all sort of properly. There's Zengara who complains of a stomach ache and it's suggested to him that his problems will go away um, by shooting... Delano, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Good, eh? Yeah, which I'm sure would solve all of his problems. So we then hear the story of the attempted assassin assassination of Roosevelt and Zangara's eventual execution. So he was unsuccessful in real life. As we know, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, um, but Roosevelt wasn't. Next is the story of Leon Cholgos, who assassinated President William McKinley. Then Samuel Bick, like, comes on. He plans on crashing uh, 747 into the White House to kill Richard Nixon. And then John Hinckley and Lynette Fromm tease each other for being obsessed with Jodie Foster and Charles Manson, respectively. Like, they're all just, like, in this world yeah. at different times of – anyway, it's quite confusing. We go back to the carnival and Charles Guiteau flirts with Sarah Jane Moore and then goes off to assassinate James Garfield, as you do. <laughs> 
Sarah J. Moore and Squeaky from or Lynette from um, attempt in a really comically bad way to assassinate Gerald Ford. It's not successful. Then Samuel Bick attempts to hijack a plane to kill Nixon. Then suddenly we're transported to the Texas School Book Depository, which for those of you who know anything about American history is where um, Lee Harvey Oswald shot uh, JFK. So the eight assassins appear before this suicidally depressed Lee Harvey Oswald and convince him that he must kill a president. Um, interestingly, in the revival, the balladeer turns into Lee Harvey Oswald. Oh, okay. Which I actually think is a really great device. Yeah. Um, so then Oswald shoots out the window. We don't really hear mention of JFK and the really previously sort of jolly mood of the show is much darker now yeah so there's like a, a the sense that the assassination of jfk was like a turning point they all all the assassins all nine of them now because it's now including lee harvey oswald uh, like grouped together at the carnival and like all sort of say how well they have the right to like do whatever yeah and then they aim their guns at the audience the end a really clunky ending yeah but also like a really clunky plot yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? It's really tricky. And yeah. It's it's definitely like it's not – I think it's more of a review in style. Like yeah. this is definitely like a series of scenes yes. that are abstract but based on historical events that are much more metaphorical than intended to be um, sort of reciting history. Yes. Certainly. Um, and when it's explained in the way I just did, it makes even less sense than it does when like you watch on it. the show, yeah. Yeah, like it, it, it is – it does make sense when you see it, but it is certainly like, well, maybe there was a better way we could have done that. Yeah. I do feel like the device of the, like the gal- the um, carnival is really clever. Yeah. Like I really like that. Yeah. But there's this kind of almost like purgatory place where they yeah. can exist together. Yeah. And that, that is together. a symbol of a lot of like Americana and yeah. winning and all those sorts yeah, of things. Yeah, like, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and all that sort of stuff like. And it's a really great – the plot is a really good commentary on a lot of the issues, like, of American culture. Yeah. But mm, does it work? I don't know. Um, it, it was – I know for me it was mostly when they had to interact with each other. Yeah. Trying to draw them together. It was kind of like I liked – I didn't I didn't even mind the idea of them all existing in the same, like, time well, plane. Well, yeah, it's just that when they, when they conversed with each other, it's very contrived. It just feels it like – It was oh. almost like you were trying to draw connections between these yeah. real-life people but just they didn't, didn't exist. happen. They didn't exist, yeah. I don't mind for them having a conversation with each other but I yes. think it should be clear that, like – one is in one decade. Yeah, one is in the, the other... 60s and one is in 1870. Exactly. Or yeah. yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I think you do need a bit of knowledge of American presidents to get this one. Like, mm. There is a lot of assumed yeah, like, knowledge. For example, like I don't know a lot about William McKinley. Like yeah. that's someone I don't know a lot about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just think like a lot of this would go over the heads of a non American audience. Yeah. Um, I happen to be fascinated by murder generally, as Ruth mentioned. So <laughs> I actually know quite a bit about all of these incidents. But I also know a bit about modern American history. Yeah. You may get lost if you don't. Yeah. I think you would. Yeah. And I also think like the really oblique references to JFK's assassination, obviously something that is so deeply embedded in like in American culture now, I think some people would miss that. Like I really do think the change in mood, a lot of people would be like, well, why? Like what's happening? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I just think we assume a lot of knowledge. Yeah. Um, it's 
I think that's probably why this show is actually not really done that much outside of America. Um, it's just a really American story that doesn't translate in a way that Hamilton is like is not. Right. Hamilton is a really American story that does translate. Yes. Because it's really just like here is here is a cool way of telling well, and the, the story. Storytelling is so clear. It's so clear. Yeah. It's so clear. But I feel like the purpose of Assassins is not to tell a story mm. in, in that way. I think it's more to make a comment. I feel like it's yes. more commentary yeah. than storytelling. That's true. Um, okay, so some background. So this guy named Charles Gilbert Jr., who was a writer and a composer, began working on a musical titled Assassins, which was originally conceived as a music theatre collage assembled from the words and lives of individuals who tried to kill an an American president. Mm. His music was like super rocky and like a bit jazzy and included quite a bit of multimedia. So he had like sound recordings and um, like some projections and stuff. it was produced by Theatre Express in 1979. Oh, okay. And as a result of some sort of, I actually can't remember the name of it, but it was some sort of like like scholarship program where like people send their scripts to like a board and Sondheim happened to be on the board and he read the script mm. for Assassins and like he was a bit interested by it. So he then asked for permission to use the original idea. Gilbert agreed and actually offered to write the book for Sondheim, but Sondheim said no. Awkward. <laughs> <laughs> um, he actually had um, John Weidman like in mind for that job. And no wonder too, like Weidman had been a writer on Sesame Street, yes. like one of the OG Sesame Street writers. What a one champion. of, if not the most influential piece of of like media in my childhood. Yep, absolutely. Like I credit Sesame Street with a lot of my liberal thinking. So thank you, John Weidman. Um, so anyway, obviously like John Weidman's a proper genius. So Sondheim wanted him. He'd also already collaborated with Sondheim on Pacific Overtures. That's right. Yeah. Um, so the show was originally intended to explore the lives of assassins throughout history, beginning with Brutus and Julius Caesar. Oh, yeah. um, but they realized that that was just like way too broad. Yeah. And so they limited themselves to just America. And thank God because even what we yeah. end up with is too broad. Yeah. So the show opened off-Broadway at Playwrights Horizons in December 1990 and it closed in February 1991 after 73 performances. Yeah, although Playwrights, it would have been a limited run anyway. Probably. Yeah, well, that's it. It's off-Broadway. Yeah. It was a pretty small run. Um, the cast included Victor Garber, Terence Mann and Patrick Cassidy, so like a, a pretty yeah. solid cast. The run sold out really quickly yeah. because it's on time, um, but it wasn't really well received. Yeah. So Frank Rich wrote, <laughs> quote, Assassins will have to fire with sharper aim and fewer blanks if it is to shoot to kill. Mm. Oof. So then... Assassins opened in London at the Donmar Warehouse in 1992, directed by Sam Mendes. Um, was he like the only director in London at the time? Like <laughs> he was in the nineties, the hottest director. Oh yeah! So that production ran for 76 performances, um, and yet it was like moderately successful. Yeah. There was then this like regional tour that saw some success in the states, and it was running for quite a stretch in the late nineties. It premiered in Australia in 1995 at the Melbourne Theatre Company. Oh, cool. Then Roundabout Theatre Company planned a revival. Yeah. So we've talked about Roundabout a lot. Like they did some really good shit. They continue to do good yeah. shit. Um, it was actually scheduled to open in 2001. Oh, yes, I've heard this story yeah, go on. It was postponed because of the events of 9-11 and just like the material was deemed to be inappropriate yeah. for the climate of the time. And wasn't it due to open like? In September. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. like. 
yeah, this show would have fallen so flat in the climate post yeah. 9-11. So it was a really good call. Um, it eventually opened in 2004 to great acclaim, but they yeah. really needed to give it that much space. Yeah. Um, that production ran for 101 performances at Studio 54 and it starred Neil Patrick Harris as the balladeer um, and Lee Harvey Oswald, so he played both, um, Mark Kudish as the proprietor and Michael Service as John Wilkes Booth. Oh, all of those men are so, so talented. Yeah. Um, my, uh, Michael Service won a Tony for his performance as yes. John Wilkes Booth. Yeah. So that production was eligible for consideration as a revival at the 2004 Tony Awards despite not originally running on Broadway. Yeah. Um, they changed the ruling like for that they they made an official um decision that it would be eligible oh okay yeah um because that was before i think they yeah yeah that was it must have been early on when like off broadway musicals weren't really going to broadway no after as revivals yes yeah that's right right. that must be one of the first ones Yeah, yeah that's right so now it's a bit more common but anyway um so it won at the 2004 Tonys Best Revival, Best Featured Actor for Michael Cerberus, Best Direction, Best Orchestrations and Best Lighting Design, as well as like a bunch of Drama Desk Awards. Oh, that's awesome. So it yeah. did really well. Since that production, there have been lots of others. Like that production really did revive it, Yeah, for want of a better word. Um, there was a notable production at the Menier Chocolate Factory starring Aaron Tveit. Um, oh. And a, yeah, I know. And there was an encore concert starring Stephen Pasquale, who I think would be an excellent John Wilkes Booth. Yeah. Um, was he not? Are you going to get to this? Well, yeah. Are they are they doing it again? Can you? Sorry. Can I like speak? <laughs> God, you're rude. <laughs> so John Doyle was set to direct an off Broadway revival in 2020, starring Judy Kuhn, Brendan Uranovitz. Ethan Slater and Stephen Pasquale, but of course that has been delayed due to COVID. Have they started performances? There are plans to resume rehearsals yeah. in the coming months, uh, rehearsals. but they, they yeah. think they think they'll be rehearsing again very soon. So, had they started it? They'd started rehearsing, but like just because okay. it was only it was only really like it was only announced in 2020, like the beginning of 2020. I think so they I just had, didn't. I think I had listened to an interview maybe with Judy Kuhn or someone who was talking about mm. it and, yeah, they were really excited for yeah. it. Yeah. Well, totally. Um, and it's a great cast. Like Ethan Slater, it's such a cool – I can't remember who – Ethan Slater must be the, um, the balladeer. He'd oh, be a really? good balladeer, I think. Oh, he's quite young. I yeah, that's but so was Neil Patrick Harris when true, he did it. True, And then he'd be a good leave Harvey Oswald. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, yeah, exciting. That's true. Yeah. Keep your eyes peeled for that. So music, I think this is actually some of the poppiest music you will ever hear from Sondheim. Definitely. Like definitely. Despite the subject matter, it's so boppy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like what the fuck Sondheim? I guess it's just because it's like later on in his career. Yeah, or, he was just yeah. like, oh, I just love murder. Um <laughs> I do think there was a bit of a missed opportunity in the sideshow concept of the carnival. Like I feel that the the music doesn't really reflect mm. that. And I think that could that could have been explored more, but also like it's perfect. So whatever. Of course it like it's the music's wonderful. Sondheim is perfect. He's a genius, so it's fine. <laughs> but yeah, that's my only comment. You can listen to quite a few recordings and I've linked to them. They include the original off-Broadway cast and the 2004 Broadway revival on Spotify. I recommend the revival because it features more songs and the cast is better. Yeah. Neil Patrick Harris is very good. Yes. Also, Michael Service's John Wilkes Booth is just mm, 
Oh, yes. So good. It was also a bit of a uh, um, renaissance, I think, for, for Neil Patrick Harris. Definitely. Because that was he after had his done big rent. break. Yeah, he'd done rent in London. London, yeah. And stuff. And he'd worked over there on the West End a few times, I think. And I think he'd maybe done a tour yeah. in America. But it was – he really wanted – he was like, I want to do music theatre. And in America it was like, oh, no, that's – um. Uh, Doogie Howser, yeah, like that's how like, they all saw it. Yeah. So, yeah, it was a big thing. I mean, this was a pretty – so this is 2004. This was a big time for him getting back on Broadway. Like this is when mm. lots of stuff happened. So, yeah. I don't – do you like his voice, Neil Patrick Harris? I do. Yeah. I think sometimes well, it's insubstantial. I like – like, yeah. It's not very music theatre, I not, wouldn't say. It's just But, I mean, like, I love him in Hedwig. Yes. Um, but, yeah, like I guess it can be a little thin – yeah. Is that sort of That's it, I think. Like yeah. still very good. Like I think I just still see him as like um Toby in um Sweeney Todd. Is oh, Toby? Okay. Toby, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Toby Tobias, and Sweeney. Yeah. That's what I yeah. that's how I see him. Like, I thought he was a beautiful Tobias. Oh yeah. yeah. Shit, yeah. Like that's perfect for him. Even yeah. now I think he could still play that role. Like he's got a beautiful falsetto. He does. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so some gateway songs. Yes. This is easy. This is the easiest gateway okay. list I've ever done. Okay, it's got to be firstly The Ballad of Booth. Yep. I love this song. I've yep. always loved this song, like f- since the beginning of time. It's an earworm and Neil Patrick Harris in the revival does a bitching job of it. Also, and like, we don't always talk about sometimes songs as earworms either. No, right? Yeah. Why did you do it, Johnny? Yeah. Oh, it's so good. It's like a hoedown. Um, you also get to hear the lovely Michael Cerverus being all torn up about having to kill himself because he killed Abraham Lincoln. God, he's good. Yeah. And the resonance in his oh. voice. Oh, too much. Um, secondly, of course, you have to listen to Unworthy of Your Love. It's just such an easy song to listen to. Yes. It sounds like a romantic love song that is actually super creepy. Yeah. It's just good. Yeah. And that's Assassins. Those are your gateways. Those are my two gateways. Well, you don't oh, – you can listen to heaps of others, but I think those are, that's them. Yeah. It's got to be those. I um, – have you ever heard the story – I think it was – John Wideman's daughter went yeah. to high school with Lin-Manuel Miranda, I think. Really? And when he was writing or something, there was some connection and and he actually, like, asked for some advice when he was writing in The oh, Heights wow. and he, like, they had, like, they sat down and he gave him heaps of advice. Anyway, I love that story. I love that. Yeah. I, um... I didn't actually know that John Wideman had been involved in Sesame Street. So when I, find, I found yeah. out, like, because I'm obsessed with Sesame Street, right? And so when I first met Shane, he knew about my Sesame Street obsession. And my siblings and I often talk about how, like, it really did shape such a liberal yeah, worldview. Yeah. For We're talking about, like, OG Sesame Street. Yeah. And that was, like, the whole TV diet that I grew up on because there just weren't really other yeah. shows. And so he had. He then told me that he was in New York um, when they won Tropfest New York. He met this woman, this like old broad, and apparently like and Shane. This is so Shane that he like would get stuck talking to someone, yeah. and he's too nice that he would not be able to leave the conversation. And so they're at this big like after party, and his filming partner's off talking to like proper celebrities, yeah. and he's stuck with this like New York broad. Yeah, the way he describes her, she she sounds like friendly, but it's like yeah, like a proper. Uh, old school yeah and so shame is like stuck in this conversation and then she mentioned something about some children's workshop that she had done like in the 70s and it turned out she was like the creator of sesame street oh my god so he'd like and just spent like the whole night talking to her yeah amazing amazing Mm. so that's why i'm with shane absolutely (laughs) (laughs) 
Do you have any other cool news for us or? Not really. No, I'm pretty boring too. Yeah. I'm seeing like several shows this week, which is exciting. Yeah, that is so exciting. Like it's exciting to be going back to theatre again in Australia. That's right. There are shows to see. Yeah, it's exciting. Yeah. I love that. The best. And I feel very sorry for our UK and US friends. Yeah, I'm really sorry. Yeah. Although what I'm excited to tell you about is I will report back on my experience watching Rent. Yes. Josephine is seeing Rent on stage for the first time. Yeah. She's going to hate it and it's going to make me cry. So, Me hating it or the show is going to make you cry? Both. Oh. <laughs> I won't hate it too loudly. Okay. If that helps. <laughs> um, yeah, follow us on everything. Yeah, do all the things. Rate, and we rate will and review. S- we'll see you. We'll, we'll, you will hear us next Monday. For a mixtape? Yeah. We'll see you then. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.